All eyes on America's banking system. That's after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB. But China is also watching closely. It's the biggest bank failure in the U.S. since 2008, with over $200 billion in assets on the line. But the company's hit aren't just in America. Several Chinese startups are also embroiled in the fall. One sector alone has hundreds of millions at stake. A look at SVB's website notes its history of operating in China, going back decades. What does all this mean, not just for America, but also Chinese firms? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, has collapsed. With $212 billion in assets, SVB marks the largest U.S. bank failure since 2008. The news is making waves in America, with ripples also spanning across the Pacific to investors and startups in China. Chinese biotech companies alone have more than $240 million deposited in the bank. SVB's website says it's been operating in China for more than 20 years through a Chinese joint venture. It was popular among China-based venture capital firms and was one of the first banks to serve Chinese startups. A dozen Chinese firms have issued statements since SVB collapse. Most are biotech companies trying to pacify investors and clients. That's by saying their exposure to the bank was limited. Among the hardest-hit company is Baiji, one of China's largest cancer-focused drug makers. It said Monday it had more than $175 million in uninsured cash deposit at SVB, representing about 4% of its cash and short-term investments. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently approved a drug from Baiji for treating a certain type of leukemia. In second place, biotech company Brebio is also taking a major hit. It had $42 million cash and short-term investments in SVB. That money makes up about 9% of the company's cash deposits. Brebio was part of the effort to launch the first combination therapy for COVID-19 in China. And another pharmaceutical firm, Zilab, announced that its cash deposit at SVB were immaterial at about $23 million. These three Chinese companies, plus others, say SVB's closure won't impact their operations or payroll. Over 3 million toys from China are being recalled. That's after the deaths of two children. That's according to a recent notice published by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, or CPSC. The Calico Critter toys came as part of a set with baby bottle and pacifier accessories. A New Jersey company imported the toys from China and says it's aware of three incidents involving the pacifier accessory, including two deaths. Amazon and Walmart sold the toys between 2000 and 2021. The CPSC says consumers should take the toys away from children immediately and contact the company for instructions on how to receive a free replacement. And this isn't an isolated incident. Toys coming out of China have been coming under increasing scrutiny over the years. That's because 85% of the toys sold in the U.S. are made in China. According to global economic consulting firm Nira, nearly all toy recalls in 2007 were made in China, accounting for a whopping 98%. A Chinese rocket broke up in space, and its debris took an uncontrolled plunge back to Earth, landing in a rural area of Texas. NTD's Sam Wang has more. The rocket had launched in June last year, 
carrying three military surveillance satellites. Those devices were aimed at the South China Sea. Up to this point, China has neither addressed the unplanned re-entry nor shared trajectory data with the U.S. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has been critical of China in the past, calling out Beijing on carelessness and a lack of transparency. So far, no debris has been found. Officials suspect it could have fallen anywhere within a radius spanning hundreds of miles. This isn't the first time China has faced criticism for its spacecraft remnants. Just last year, pieces of a Chinese rocket booster plunged into the Pacific Ocean after a similar uncontrolled re-entry. Despite no immediate reports of damage, it led to a closure of Spanish airspace, causing massive delays for hundreds of flights. For most countries, re-entry plans are required for spacecraft. That's to prevent leaving an excessive amount of space debris in lower orbit. Doing so could eventually lead to debris collision with satellites. It would also pose great danger to civilians if pieces of space junk unexpectedly fall back to Earth. A great wall of steel. That's what Chinese leader Xi Jinping intends to make China's military into. Xi spoke Monday at the closing of China's annual rubber stamp parliament meeting. It marked his first appearance since securing his president-breaking third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. In his speech, Xi emphasized military modernization and development and called on the regime to step up its management and control of both national and public security. He also said China must achieve greater self-reliance in science and technology. That message comes amid tensions with Washington as it works with allies to block Chinese access to chip-making equipment and other cutting-edge technology. According to Xi, pro-Beijing nationalism will usher China into the future, including bringing Taiwan under mainland Chinese control. Beijing has boosted diplomatic and military pressure on the island in recent years. Add that to its refusal to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it sparked fears of a possible war on Taiwan. Taiwan's defense spending has a new direction. In a report, the island's military said it would focus this year's resources on preparing for a total blockade of the Taiwan Strait by China. That means replenishing artillery, rocket stocks and parts for F-16 fighter jets. The goal? To strengthen combat continuity. The ministry also said it would include priority funding for U.S.-made weapons. That's including Stinger anti-aircraft missiles and HIMARS mobile rocket launchers. Beijing staged war games around Taiwan in August. Troops fired missiles over Taipei and declared no-fly and no-sail zones around the area. It was largely seen as a simulation of how the regime would seek to cut Taiwan off from foreign aid in a war. The Chinese Communist Party views Taiwan as part of its territory, though it has never ruled the island. The Chinese regime has threatened to take control of the island by force if necessary. For the first time ever, the head of the Pentagon will have to deal with a Chinese counterpart sanctioned by the U.S. Beijing appointed a new defense minister on Sunday, along with four vice premiers. The new defense chief, Li Shangfu, is on a U.S. blacklist for buying Russian weapons. What sets Li apart is his technical background. Li used to be an aerospace engineer, and he once led a Chinese military branch responsible for speeding up China's space and cyber warfare capabilities. Li's appointment comes as Washington pushes to restore military communication with China. That stopped after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last August. Responding to Li's appointment, a Pentagon spokesperson said the U.S. military could not comment on media reports about China's leadership changes. 
He added that the DOD had been clear about wanting to maintain communications with the Chinese military. As Cold War fears grow between Washington and Beijing, negative feelings about China are spiking among U.S. citizens. A Gallup poll last month found only 15 percent of Americans hold a favorable view of China, meaning four out of five think poorly of it, a historic high. This trend is taking hold across party lines, too, from Republicans to Democrats to independents. Of the three, Republicans gave the lowest positive rating at a mere 6 percent. What's more, about two-thirds of those surveyed see Beijing's military buildup as a major threat. Meanwhile, support for Taiwan is surging in the U.S., with close to 80 percent favoring the self-governed island. That's the highest score since Gallup began tabulating the value in 1996. Lockdown is coming back to a Chinese city. Officials say they are dealing with a flu outbreak. But residents are worried about a return of the zero-COVID-19 policy. Here's the latest. With patients again flooding fever clinics in Chinese hospitals, the northern city of Xi'an launched a contingency plan. It seeks to combat what the city called a flu pandemic. The scheme allows officials to shut down areas of the city in case of severe outbreaks. Measures include school and business closures and a ban on mass gatherings. Home to a population of 13 million, Xi'an was the first city in China where the Omicron variant emerged in late 2021. Now new controls similar to those devised for COVID-19 are unsettling the public. There seems to be a spike of flu infections in many regions. Some people suspect that the influenza A might still be COVID-19, only that the CCP has changed its name. According to former U.S. Army microbiologist Sean Lin, COVID-19 remains widespread in China. Some reports even say makeshift hospitals are still being built. Have you ever heard about any government building a quarantine facility for flu outbreak? In China's capital, Beijing, a hospital reported over 400 people waiting in line one morning. Most infections were among children. A lot of people. We've been accepting quite a number of patients lately. All of them are children with fever and flu symptoms. In eastern Zhejiang province, another hospital received 4,000 patients in just one day, half of them flu patients. Hospitals in Shanghai saw similar overcrowding. Other videos on social media captured outbreaks in Hebei, Henan, Tianjin, and more areas. An expert says influenza does hit China this time of year, but with COVID-19 dominating the past three years, there were no reports of large-scale flu outbreaks. It's impossible to tell the difference between influenza A and COVID-19 by clinical symptoms because they are similar. The only way to precisely distinguish them is through antigen testing or nucleic acid testing. Tang added, the sudden flare-up is fueling doubts about Beijing's transparency on COVID-19 and other data. Two mortal enemies in the Middle East have resumed diplomatic relations. Iran and Saudi Arabia announced the news on Friday. This comes after secret talks mediated by China. An expert says it's a sign of China's increasing influence in the oil-rich region, something that holds significant meaning for the U.S. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. After years of tension over the war in Yemen, Saudi Arabia and Iran announced on Friday that they will resume diplomatic relations. But what's even more significant is China's involvement in mediating the deal. This is, uh, very simply put, this is a Chinese move 
to uh, demonstrate that they're really uh, the world leaders that can bring countries together that are diametrically opposed. China expert John Mills said he was shocked because these two countries have been mortal enemies. He said their agreement shows the ineffectiveness of President Biden. I mean, he's been totally, totally um, over the top, unfriendly toward the Saudis. So the Saudis are naturally going to seek other, uh, other, other superpowers to uh, 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 work with. Saudi Arabia is the world's top oil exporter. Mill said the United States has disliked Saudi Arabia since the Obama years. Now China is a major player. Well, they need the oil desperately. Uh, they're getting it now, but it has to go through um, the Straits of Malacca, uh, uh, Indonesia, and Singapore. It's extremely vulnerable. This secures the land bridge over Afghanistan, which the Biden team messed up also, and uh, the, the pipeline being built from Iran to China. And now they can just... Uh, the, Saudi Arabia doesn't even have to ship the oil. Uh, they can just uh, ship, you know, connect to the same pipeline, and uh, it goes straight. Now, now uh, China has uh, energy security. The White House National Security Council is aware of the renewed ties and said they're hopeful this will help to de-escalate tensions in the Middle East. Mills said the White House is seriously misunderstanding how this relationship affects Americans. For Americans watching this who don't quite understand how international relations affect them uh, on a personal level, um, can you comment on how this could play out and affect Americans at some point in the future? The problem is when China is now the dominant partner for Iran uh, and uh, Saudi, that begins to squeeze the Europeans, the South Americans, other Asian countries, and so it increases prices on fossil fuels. So it drives up prices for everybody. It increases uncertainty. It pushes other countries into the Chinese hemisphere, out of our hemisphere, uh, out of our sphere of influence. Meanwhile, White House clean energy czar John Podesta remarked Thursday that Chinese renewable energy companies will play a major role in future U.S. energy production. Arlene Richards, NTD News. On Monday, Chinese leader Xi Jinping called for his country to play a bigger role in managing global affairs. Coming up, is China really opening up as its new vice premier promised? I don't think they're really opening up. I think they're trying to convince countries to invest. I think they're trying to convince countries to trade because they know that's where their money comes from. Uh, but at, at its base, they, they want to keep growing economically and putting that money into their military, which they will then use uh, in their idea to take over Taiwan. We sat down with Anders Kaur, publisher of the journal of Political Risk, to get details on how the Chinese Communist Party is sanction-proofing its economy and about what would happen to the $2 trillion worth of U.S. assets in China if war broke out. More on that after the break, here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Is China staying the course of opening up, as its new vice premier promised? Or is Beijing striving to achieve economic independence and sanction-proof its economy ahead of a possible attack on Taiwan? Plus, what would happen to the $2 trillion of U.S. assets in China in case of a war? We spoke to Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, 
for his take. Anders Court, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. So Chinese leader Xi Jinping has secured his third term as China's leader. And it seems, you know, there's a new piece from the Wall Street Journal talking about how Xi Jinping brings China's reform era to an end. That's in reference to Deng Xiaoping, who really tried to open up China's economy and have all these different reforms. So what does that mean in terms of the U.S.? Is China decoupling from us on its own? What does that mean going forward? Well, after COVID, um, you know, after the opening in China from after COVID, they've they're trying to claim that they're open for business. They have had a, uh, a delegation in uh, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum uh, that claimed to be open for business. But I think that really they're not. I think they're going the other way. There's there's a, a sense that Xi Jinping is becoming more ideological. He is uh, doubling down on Taiwan. There's a manifesto now, an anti-American manifesto now. Uh, in, on the foreign ministry website that's quite detailed and long about all of the complaints that the Chinese Communist Party has about the United States. So I think that what China's really doing in terms of their so-called op- opening up is they're refocusing on their domestic economy, which is really a form of sanction-proofing the economy. And I think we should see it as as a risk indicator in terms of uh, they're attempting to not only sanction-proof their economy, but they're attempting to uh, rocket their uh, their technological development um, to, in order to make it independent so that when they do invade Taiwan, which is their stated plan uh, at some point in the future, if Taiwan doesn't peacefully reunify, quote-unquote, um, that the, the country will be sanction-proof, the country will be independent technologically and so be able to carry on. And Anders, on that note, you did mention this focus on domestic manufacturing. It seems, you know, the new Premier Li Qiang is also talking about that like high quality growth internally. He is also mentioning opening up and he is a Xi Jinping loyalist. So how should we read these two different statements? I don't think they're really opening up. I think they're trying to convince countries to invest. I think they're trying to convince countries to trade because they know that's where their money comes from. Uh, but at, at its base, they they want to keep growing economically and putting that money into their military, which they will then use uh, in their idea to take over Taiwan. I mean, this is Xi Jinping has called for a quicker military development, a bigger military development. He called for that at the National People's Congress over the weekend. What does that mean in terms of the economy? You had a recent piece out called China's economic prospects worsen. So what are you seeing in this area? Well, I mean, in terms of their, their, the sanction proofing of their economy should really be an indicator uh, to the world about what they're planning to do. And, um, you know, it is it's an ideological move on the part of Xi Jinping. I, I think he really is a Marxist Leninist. Uh, which is bad for business. I mean, these these are the guys that take businesses. Um, they're doing something now called golden shares, which is they they buy one percent of the company of a company and they install a Chinese Communist Party member in into the board, um, and they expect that that CCP member and that one percent uh, will essentially control the company. Um, it also provides the CCP with intelligence on the company. 
Um, and you know that's not how capitalism is supposed to work in capitalism and in, in market systems. You're supposed to allow the shareholders to vote and that decides company policy and the shareholders are voting according to what's good for the company, what's good for the shareholders, not what's good for the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, investors, international investors really have to think about uh, putting more money, throwing more money into China uh, than they already have. They've, they've put $2 trillion into, uh, you know, vehicles that called VIEs that don't really own the companies that they purport to own. Uh, it's it's a very dangerous investment. It'd be, e it'd be easy for the Chinese Communist Party to take it at some point. And on that note, really quickly, what would we see in a time of war with all these like $2 trillion that we've put into China? What would happen to that money? Are people going to be able to get it out? Doesn't seem likely, but what would we see? Well, already, I think, uh, you know, uh, investors are having a hard time getting their money out of China. There are capital controls. Um, you know, there's there's a recent report on an investor who couldn't get his money out of a Hong Kong HSBC, uh, you know. And so I think you would you would see on both sides of the border, I think you'd see freezing of assets. Uh, so U.S. investor assets would be frozen in China. And Anders, speaking of money ending up in China, it seems right now there's a lot of e-commerce platforms that are actually huge in America. Timu, for example, has been downloaded millions of times, especially after the Super Bowl. And with this app, right, it's being promoted as the billionaire, like live like a billionaire because everything is so cheap on there. But there's a lot of, say, data and security concerns. So what is maybe the real goal behind how popular this app is? Well, I think what we can say about Timu is that it's part and parcel of sort of the TikTok approach, right? Which is to uh, pretend that a, 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 an app is somehow an American app, that it's somehow secure. But what we're finding out about TikTok is that it's not at all secure, um, that we have whistleblowers blowers coming out of the security of TikTok's own uh, security apparatus. You're saying it's not secure. Uh, there are connections to China. And I think we can expect the same to come to light over time with Timu. Um, and and I, I just don't think we ought to be letting uh, these companies from China, which is now an adversary of the United States, uh, is thinking of providing weapons to Russia. Uh, we shouldn't allow these companies to take huge amounts of market share in the United States. So we're talking about you know, hundreds of billions of dollars per company, sometimes over a trillion dollars. And all of that could be lost to the United States. So we're, you know, we're really risking, risking quite a bit. There's now a something called a global minimum tax that the Biden administration is pushing. And the global minimum tax advantages uh, Chinese companies because state-owned companies uh, are not taxed by this global minimum tax of 15%. But U.S. companies, especially the big internet companies, will be taxed everywhere they do business. So we're we're going into a world, uh, in part because of what, of what the Biden administration is pushing, uh, that will even worse for the United States and our ability to collect revenue uh, than it has been in the past. And we're already losing market share. So we need to have a complete economic rethink about how we deal with China. 
And Anders, I think you touched a little on the solutions or what steps should be taken to make sure this doesn't happen, but what would those look like? I think the U.S. and Europe and our uh, allies in Asia, like Japan, India, um, South Korea, need to impose stricter sanctions and tariffs on China and Russia. Uh, these are the main two countries that are causing global instability today. We need to be strengthening each other with trade instead of strengthening our adversary. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.